0: This is my comeback story. This is is Trey Lewis with Good Landing Recovery, and you're listening to The Comeback. Welcome back. My name is Trey Lewis, and excited to be here with you today on The Comeback. Um, I have a special guest, Todd White, who is one of the most legit people I know who is just going for it, Um, has a radical testimony. I know that he was saved out of drug addiction in 2004. Um, has reached millions of people with the gospel. Just Todd, can't even tell you what an honor it is to to have you on our podcast.
1: Thank you, bro. It's a pleasure to be able to to pour in and to see lives changed because Jesus can change a life in a moment.
0: Amen. It's Amen. That's awesome. really cool. Well, I was listening to your testimony the other day while I was running and um it is um I mean, it's powerful, man, and uh, Thank you. It, so many incredible things that were said in there. Um, knowing God versus feeling God—it um, it would be very encouraging. I know a lot of people that are going to be listening to this, or people on the front end of coming out of of active addiction. And I, I just—if if you would, man, would you just share part of your story and just just encourage us?
1: Yeah. So I was a—I was addicted to to drugs and alcohol for 22 years. And I actually just turned 50 on Christmas this year. So I uh amazing, amazing encounter with Jesus in 2004. And leading up to that, um, at the end of after I got kicked out of the military and was extradited a couple times across America uh, because I ran away from the military twice and put in military prison a couple times. I grew up in a little in a in a children's home when I was 11, parents got divorced, just all the whole, the whole bad background. And a mom that I didn't know loved me, a dad that I didn't know loved me, just all that stuff. But what I was really yearning for is to meet God as a father, but I didn't know he existed. My family was full of non-believers and nobody had a relationship with Jesus that was in my life. And so when I met my girlfriend and she got pregnant, and we had our daughter. When my daughter was born, I became suicidal and wanted to end my life and thought, if this is it, I do not want this, and I just it would be better for me to be dead than to be alive. So I threatened my girlfriend's life in that because if 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 I couldn't have her in this life and I couldn't have my daughter, then nobody was gonna. And so that whole death threat, suicidal thing followed us through um, for seven years out of my seven and a half year old daughter's life. And at the end of that, I ended up going out one night and ripping off just drug dealer after drug dealer, came home, and my girlfriend's gone. And I I went over to her stepdad's house. I was going to get a rifle to end my life. Uh, The most important part to understand about addiction is that you can't beat this thing on your own. And so and people that go through NA or AA, that program was started – by bill and bob who started the program with jesus and so but as other religions would come forward and they didn't want to be a part of jesus they knew that they had to kind of make it palatable for all religions Mm. and so they took jesus as the core out of this and the finished work of the cross out of it and put any higher power in it and so when that happened the numbers of people that got free drastically Uh, reduced. And the problem is, is that with the program right now, the odds are, and I'm not against it. I think it's, I think it's great to want to be free. It's just, if I'm going to, if I'm going to come into a meeting and I'm going to say, hi, my name's Todd and um, I'm a recovering addict. What I need to do is I need to fight addiction and I need to like be in this constant state of recovery, and if I'm saying, hi, my name's Todd, and I'm a recovering alcoholic, and everybody says, hi, Todd, it's the way you introduce yourself to the meetings. <clears throat> when when you find out in Christ, when Jesus comes into your life, and you find out that you're no longer a recovering addict, you're no longer a recovering alcoholic, you're a son and a brand new creation, yeah. it changes everything. Yes. So you no longer have to fight addi- addiction, you need to submit to your father. And so that changes everything. So for me, I had no clue of any of that. I went through that whole seven years of horrible stuff with my seven and a half year old daughter, the nine years altogether with my girlfriend. And I threatened her life and all that. I came home, she's gone. I went to her stepdad's house to get a rifle because I was going to end my life. I thought, you know, it's over. She left me. She's not with somebody. I'm no good. I'm out of here. So I went to get a gun out of the gun cabinet. And on the way to the gun cabinet, I passed by a book. I flipped the phone book open, and it flipped open to churches, and I drove to this church. Now, out of 586 churches, I drove to this church. I just picked one randomly through this thing with a Sharpie pen that I was going to write my suicide letter. I I went to the church, and I met this guy, and I was really angry, and he was really happy, and I didn't believe anybody had the right to be really happy. If I wasn't happy, nobody had the right to be, and so— and I was also the guy that was the life of the party, the joker, the guy that made everybody laugh, that you couldn't undercut me. I would get you. I was quicker on my feet, witty, just all that stuff. Yeah. And so here this pastor's talking to me, and he said, let me tell you about Jesus. And I said, I didn't come here to hear about Jesus. And he said, this is a church. You know, that's, the, I mean, why would you come here? And I said, because I need to tell somebody my stuff. So I'm telling him all my junk and Just hammering him, and he looks at me, and he goes, it sounds like you don't want your life. You just said you were going to commit suicide, and you came here. Why do you think you came here? I said, I don't know. Why don't you tell me? And then he shared the gospel with me, but he didn't share the gospel with me in a way that he—where I was this horrible sinner that there was no way for me to get free from this. And he didn't share a legalistic approach with me where you had to go through and jump through all these hoops in in order to get free. What he did share to me is he said to me, he goes, he goes, why don't you give your life to somebody that wants it? Mm. And I said, who would want my life? It didn't register to me because all I'd earned is death, hell, the grave, prison, stealing. I've been on so many trials. It's ridiculous. I've been in orange jumpsuits before so many judges. It's just crazy. I mean, my whole life has been running. And I basically have been running, covering up lies, lies, covering up lies. Because when you lie, you have to cover that lie. And then you have to remember how you covered it with another one. And then your whole life just becomes this facade where you're wearing fig leaves. And when I say fig leaves, I mean, because when, when Adam and Eve sinned and walked away from their call as sons and daughters, God said, where are you? And Adam had covered himself up, knew that he was naked and covered himself up. But before that, They had relationships. And so I was hiding, like hiding. Todd, where are you? I was hiding because I was always guilty. So pornography was one of my main addictions. I was hugely addicted to pornography. It was horrible, yucky. I fantasized all the time. It was a constant fantasy. My life was a fantasy, like in everything. So this pastor told me, if I didn't want my life, why didn't I give it to somebody that did? And I said, who would want my life? And he said, but it's not about what you've done. It's about what Jesus did. And he shared the cross with me. He shared the gospel. And then he shared with me his testimony. He shared how God took him out of his life and all this horrible stuff. And when he was sharing it, I was like, there ain't no way, dude. There's no way that you did that stuff. There's no way that that's you. And he said, that's just it. God doesn't look at what I've done. He looks at what his son has done, which is big enough to cover up all the things that I've done. And I'm like, okay, this is like two nuts. Like you're you're psycho. And so, but I know that there was no way for the story that he was telling me to line up with the same person that was talking to me. And I saw something in his eyes that was completely different. And the Bible says that the lamp of the body is the eye. And if your eye is single, it's in Matthew six twenty two. If your eye is single, your whole body is full of light. But if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Which means that I have the capacity. To house the light of the Lord, Christ in me, the hope of glory, or the reality of God's Holy Spirit living inside of me in agency or or in active communion with my spirit, where my spirit and God's spirit become one, where my flesh becomes flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone, to where I actually become one as a temple for the Holy Spirit. That's what I saw in this pastor, Dan. But I had no idea how to get that. So he told me. He said, "Since you don't want your life, why don't you give it to somebody that does?" And to get away from him, because I was tired of hearing it. As I was thinking, "Where am I going to get drugs at?" He said, "Why don't you give your life?" I said, "I said, if he wants it, he can have it." And pretty much, that was my that was my prayer, which wasn't really good because what I didn't do as I didn't surrender. <clears throat> surrender is the only way for the gospel to work. And so I didn't surrender. What I did was I incorporated. So what happens is when you incorporate Jesus into your life for what you can get from him, you're holding back your life from him. And honestly, there's no way for you to beat addiction by by holding back your life. You can't incorporate him in to get something from him. You give your life back to him because it doesn't belong to you in the first place. You give him everything and you make Jesus the complete Lord, not just Lord, when you get to heaven, Savior to get you to heaven, but actually Lord over your life and master of your life here. So in my life, one of my hardest things for me was dad would tell me like that day I went home, actually, you know, and I, I, I called my daughter and I told her that I found God and tell mommy that daddy found God. And my seven and a half year old kid said, you know, what's he like? I said, I don't know. But this guy told me his God is going to change my life. So I didn't even understand that Jesus became mine. It was still this pastor's God. And so my girlfriend came home, so I told my daughter to kick and scream to get her there. <clears throat> when she walked in the house, I told her everything was going to change. And she's an atheist in her family. They're all non-believers. So I didn't come from a background of of any any believers. And so she's telling me how she hates me, and that I'm a liar, and now I'm going to be a hypocrite. And to top that off, the only person that talked about Jesus was her grandma that six months before I met Jackie, she passed away. She became a Jehovah witness and pretty much cut her family off from all functions, all birthdays, Christmas, Easter. And so they're a very tight knit family when it came to those holidays. So that's her view of who this God is. Wow. So I had no idea about any of that stuff. But anyway, um, everything's going to change. I put my daughter to bed. I'm sleeping on the couch as usual. And then within an hour and a half, that cocaine is calling my name. That yeah. crack cocaine is calling my name and, and I'm gonna do whatever I gotta do to get it. I stole the debit card again, my girlfriend's debit card. I didn't work. I didn't I like I scammed her for so long. I went and bought my Coke and did it all, came home after the binge and my girlfriend is up on the couch with my daughter again, just waiting for daddy to come home, but just before she has to go to school, you know. I come home rolling the door an hour before she has to start ready get ready for get ready for school, and man, screaming and yelling, and you did it again, you're a liar. And like, I think that my girlfriend had some kind of hope, because she hoped that something would change. But it was a really, really rough, really bad. So I called that pastor, and I told him his Jesus didn't work. And I was screaming at him on the phone. He said, what do you mean my Jesus doesn't work? He's your Jesus too. And I said, no, he's your Jesus, because he doesn't want to help me, you know, (laughs) I'm just angry. And he says to me, Todd, how do you feel?" right now. I said, what do you mean? How do I feel? I said, that's the dumbest question ever, man. Can you hear like in my voice, how I feel? And he said, Todd, he said two days ago, you wouldn't even have cared. Thank God there's a seed that's growing in your heart. And so there's so much in that because sometimes we think that we're not having any progress and nothing's happening. But I'm telling you right now that if you have the want to be free, if you have the inkling to be free from drugs, to be free from alcohol, the truth is is that Jesus wants to set you free way more than you want to be free. So just that seed of that, the beginning place of, yes, Jesus is real. I have that, yes, Jesus is real, but he's not for me. He's in your life, but he's not mine. So I didn't have personal relationship. I had an incorporated gospel with a God that was still out here. I didn't know that he was in here. One thing that changed is I didn't want to commit suicide, that suicidal thing. But I didn't know how to fix this. I didn't know how to change this. I didn't know how to get I didn't know how to attain total freedom. So that happened for month after month and just kept going. The drugs did. And I was in a uh, I was a singer in a band. And so I was the front guy. So we wrote all of original music and I was like, you know, we passed our CDs out to seven dust and all these bands that were out there and just trying to get our stuff signed because we had all originals and we were a pretty good band. But all my music was really dark. I was the writer of the lyrics. It was all about hate and loss and death and gosh, jealousy and rage and anger and drugs and partying.
0: Yeah.
1: And like, which was the thing that sells in that in that in that genre? And so I was just basically pouring out my life when I would when I would write songs, and I was all full of like depression and and all this. So the guys they actually came over to my house because I had band practice in my basement. And so we lived in this 1978 single wide trailer um, that was pretty much beat up big time. Um, I mean, it's a 78. So obviously, you know, 30 or 25 years in, it's pretty beat up. We are on two acres of land out in the farmlands. We had a basement underneath and the basement was like there was a sewage leak in the basement. And I built a band room like over top of that sewage leak. It was just the craziest thing. And we couldn't stop it. It was just—it was horrendous. But I put skids on the floor and carpet all around the room, and those yellow and red, like, like spotlights and green spotlights to make it moody. And so all the guys come over to practice, and I'm like, "Dudes, guess what?" And this is two days after I incorporated Jesus. I said, "I gave my life to Jesus," and they all started freaking out, saying, "Shut up, man!" And then (laughs) one of them, one of them, one of them handed me a joint. You know, and there was no, there wasn't even conviction in my life to stop getting high. I had written all these reports on marijuana and, and the medicinal use all these years before it even got legalized in lots of places. And so I was this defendant of marijuana and it was like my 20 years. I smoked, man, I would tell you probably upwards of probably 15 of those years I'd smoked an ounce of weed a week by myself without even sharing. Sometimes I'd share, but it was basically all personal use. And so drinking cocaine, Pills, all that stuff was on top of it. So the guys, I'm telling them all about Jesus at the meet and the same thing. I talked about Jesus. They're like, here, man, they hand me this joint. So I'm like, Jesus is amazing, man. He loves you guys. I'm getting high. I'm partying. No conviction in me. I'm like (laughs) uh, nothing. It didn't matter. So at that night, I started talking about Jesus more. And then I started to to scream Jesus in the microphone. And uh, the guys got really upset. And three of the guys said, if you say that again, we're out of here. (laughs) And sure enough, I said, Jesus, 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 Jesus. And three of the guys quit the band. We'd been together for almost four years. So we were like really tight. So three of the guys quit the band and packed their stuff up, took their amps out, took their drums out. And then one guy stayed with me. His name was Bobby. He was like my best friend in the world, you know, just a good guy, good father, seven and a half year old kid, three and a half year old kid. They had a lawsuit when he was younger so that he didn't have to work. They owned everything, owned their property, owned this house up in the mountains beautiful but his wife wanted to work a little bit just to like get out of the house so he's the stay-at-home dad self-taught closet guitar player played like joe satriani like jingvei Malmsteen, like just amazing like the guy was like so talented so when i told him about jesus he said hey bro you found your path i got mine we're cool and so that day we kind of partied hard and, and then the next day i didn't show up for band practice bobby came but i was gone i was out on a cook binge and It just got really, really bad. I remember the one day I was upstairs and I came in. My girlfriend started freaking out on me. And I went and I punched a hole in the closet door and I cut my hand on the wood. And I came right downstairs out the back steps and I told him, hey, man, Jesus loves you. I came down in the band room and he's like, dude, like you were just upstairs. I just heard you, man. You What would you do? Did you hit somebody? I said, no, I hit the wall. He goes, man, you got to chill on that Jesus stuff, dude. It's not doing anything for you. As a matter of fact, you're worse now than you were before this God came into your life. Like, you just need to find the strength from within and all that. So I'm going through, going on Sundays, saying I'm sorry for all the stuff I'm doing Monday through, you know, Monday through Sunday. And I'm like, you know, God forgive me. God forgive me. And, like, I am caught in this place of Romans 7 where even though I don't want to do it, I'm doing it. And like, I'm in this place where Paul says, even though I will to do the things I know to do, I don't do those things. And even though I know I'm not supposed to, I keep doing it. And so if you look at the context of Romans 7, he's talking to people that are under the law, but they're not in relationship, because relationship comes by the Holy Spirit. So if you got Romans 3, where righteousness apart from the, uh, apart from the faith will be imputed to us, Romans 4 talks about righteousness being imputed to us, talks about Abraham, after you know he was gonna he was gonna sacrifice Isaac and he talked about he believed, therefore it was accounted to unrighteousness. And and so you're going to Romans 5 where it says, Therefore, having peace with God, having been justified by faith, I have peace with God, meaning my peace comes because I completely submit and completely surrender to right standing with God and 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 who I am in the Father's eyes. Seeing the price that was paid for me, because the price that was paid for me determines my value. So if my value was determined by the cost that heaven paid for me, and God so loved the world that he gave his son, then my value comes out of how valuable the son is to the father. Now, being God's son, that's pretty valuable. But Jesus didn't come just to get us to heaven. He came to give us new hearts so that our stony heart could be changed into a heart of flesh. He came to transform our mind so that our mind could not think the way that we used to think, but biblically sound thinking to where we could take thoughts captive and know what God thinks, because there's no way the enemy can infiltrate a mind that is fully submitted to Christ. There's no way. I didn't know any of that, but I saw it in Dan, but I didn't know how to get it. And I'm, these guys aren't showing up for band practice. They left. My my friends all left. Bobby's coming. I'm, I'm blowing this thing out with hypocrisy, like serious hypocrisy, not a little bit. I'm partying all the time. I'm still out on coke binges. I'm still hooked on porn. Like all that stuff is still happening. And I can't read. So reading is something that I went the whole way through school without being able to comprehend. I could read, but my mind would drift. I would get I would get a couple sentences in, and now I'm drifting, thinking about what I'm going to do after school or what I'm going to do later or the party that we're going to have on Friday or how am I going to score my next bag of weed. And so my brain had been so terrorized by life and by the world that there was no way for me to comprehend. So I had ADHD. I was labeled with ADHD. I was labeled with dyslexia. I was labeled with bipolar. I was labeled with manic depression. I had it all. I had all these different learning comprehension disorders. I mean, even all the way back to grade school, like when I went to elementary school, I remember the right side of my report card was always all ends, always like really bad, like has self-control with others, works well with others, just comprehension, all that stuff. I would read the paragraph and they'd say, answer the questions, and I'd forget everything. So as far back as I can remember, that thing happened. So now I'm faced with this Bible. That there's no way for me to read it because I can't, I don't know how to read. And I have no idea where to read, what goes first. And so instead of opening the Bible, I would go to church on Sunday hoping that something in that something that the pastor was gonna say was gonna change my life. Or I would go and call Dan and have him talk to me all the time. And he would just speak scripture over scripture. He never told me that I was messed up because of all the stuff I went through. He always told me who God said I was. So it's so important to not focus on the things you've messed up on because regret produces death, but godly sorrow leads to repentance. And once you find out and you taste and see how good God is, the last thing you want to do is revisit things that God says are finished. Because the truth is, is when the blood of Jesus is recognized and realized by the soul, what happens is it cleanses your conscience, your mind, will, and your emotions It cleanses your soul from all unrighteousness. And all of a sudden, you realize that you're forgiven. And when you realize how much you've been forgiven, the byproduct is loving much. And so I'm in this process of trying to figure out how to do this thing, failing miserably at it, going to church, saying, I'm sorry, losing my girlfriend, even to this thing, because now the very hypocrite that I hated my whole life and I I persecuted Christians, I I mean, in in my voice, not physically. But I used to hate Christians because they were just these people that talked about this eye in the sky, this, this God that was watching over. It. And then I saw the world, I'm like, the world is so twisted and so messed up. If God's watching that, how can he be good? That's, that's just wrong, man. Yeah. And so I just didn't want it. Now I've become the very thing that I hated my whole life in like a day. And so I'm months into this thing, finally five months, later five and a half months about approximately. I went out and uh, picked up a drug dealer. I didn't have any money. It was actually the last night, um, my girlfriend and my daughter, they actually got in a car and followed me in town. I was trying to call my dealer. He didn't answer. And I couldn't get an answer from him. So I was like, I got to call another one. So I called another one, didn't get an answer. My girlfriend and my daughter behind me, parking me in at the um, store, the payphone, And I, I turned around, I saw him, I put the phone on the on the thing, the receiver. And I went, I'm so sorry. And my daughter's screaming, saying, daddy, you promised you'd never do it again. I thought you said you found God. I did, honey. I have him like just twisted. And she's like, my girlfriend says, get in the car. I hate you. Look what you're doing to your daughter. You don't care about anybody but yourself. But she was right. Like I only cared about me. I was selfish. I was just all about me, what I could do to me, how I could feel better. Pornography is how I can satisfy me. Drugs are how I can feel. Alcohol is how I can feel. And unfortunately, it hurts a lot of other people in the midst of that. So I have this quake of aftermath of all that junk that once this thing finally sets in and I get to see Jesus, I've got that whole quake from the bomb that's exploded from the life of addiction, all these bridges that I have burned and hurt and all these family members and all that stuff. And my gosh, that's huge. How am I going to get past that? I keep thinking about all this stuff, all these people I've hurt, but there's nothing I can do. So I can't even get free for me. So for me to be free. So I, I leave the parking lot. I lost him. I went down into the city and I went to a section I usually don't go into because that's where a lot of the gangbangers bangers and stuff go. And I know it's dangerous. People get hurt up in there. And I went in there anyway, because I didn't have any drugs and I picked up some kid. I put him in my car and I told him that I was a cop. And we pulled around the corner, had the drugs in my hand already. Told me I had the right to remain silent. And he he said, I knew you were a cop. I told him get out of the car. I put his hands on the hood, and when he got out, his one leg out, and then his other leg out, as soon as his butt lifted off that seat, I hit the gas, the door slammed shut, and right away, he unloaded a 9 millimeter at me from right outside my door. Huh. Now, I had a Jeep with a soft top on, so I didn't hear any broken glass, but I heard the gunshots, and as I'm trying to get away, and the wheels are squealing to get away, he emptied the clip, I heard the clicks at the end, and I'm going, and I'm, I'm flying out, but at the same time those gun blasts came out, I heard a voice say, I took those bullets for you. Are you ready to live for me yet? Now, for me, I thought, I'm shot. I'm hearing voices. I'm I'm dead. I'm dying. I got to get out of here. I'm going to bleed to death. I'm out. Because the guy unloaded a full nine. So that's not something that you, you walk away from, from 10 feet away, unless every bullet misses you, you know. But that's just not. With a gangster, they're shooting straight at you sideways. So, yeah. I mean, this one was. So as I got out of town, that voice didn't go away. It got louder, but the gun blasts were, were drowned out by that voice. And I went and did all the drugs anyway. Like, you'd think that would be enough, but it wasn't. So I went and smoked, and I smoked two eight balls of crack cocaine that night, a quarter ounce of crack. And every hit that I took off that pipe, that voice came and said, I took those bullets for you. Are you ready to live for me yet? And then it came again, and then it came again. And so for about three and a half to four hours, I guess, as I did all the cocaine that was from New York, that was real, wasn't fake, it was real. I I was totally like rocked. I thought I, I should be dead right now. I was petrified when I pulled in my driveway and i heard the gravel underneath the wheels. I thought this is surreal. I should be dead right now. What is happening? And I saw, I thought surely those bullets were all through my car. Like surely some of them, I got to see where they went through to see if they, you know. And I wasn't hit, and none of my car was even there, had no bullet holes in it at all, not even one. Yeah. I saw off the soft top of the Jeep, nothing. I looked around it and looked around it, went to the door, and she told me to get out of her life. She hated me. She's screaming, my daughter's screaming. I left, and uh, I had that pastor that was trying to help me. And a couple of days later, I was about to go to a place called Teen Challenge. I'd already looked into it, and Teen Challenge Rehabilitation Program was going to let me come. In three days, and there was an elder from the church that was going to help fund me going to Teen Challenge, and I was going to lose everything. And uh, I used to have dreads before in the band. I shaved my head completely down, and ended up like, ended up going into this place. But right before I left, um, actually the next day after I got shot, I called my friend Bobby, and I told him that I was going to be going away to get help. And he's like, "Man, you need help, bro. Rehab will be good for you." and and then I told him that I'm going to a program that talks that's about Jesus. It's not really a rehab in that sense. They don't talk about 12 steps. They talk about the Lord. And Bobby's like, "Why would you go away and hear about something that's not real? Why would you why would you give yourself to do that?" And he goes, "I'm just completely against what you're doing." And I said, "Why?" I said, "Dude, you don't you don't have anger towards a lot of things." He goes, "You're my only friend in the whole world and you're taking our friendship and you're flushing it down the tubes for some fake Religious thing that's not even real that actually makes people like worse than what they were. Look at your life, you know, like that's the conversation. And I said, No, I said, And this isn't just a 30 day program, this is a year program. And Bobby was like, You're going to go away for a year? Are you kidding me? And she was just so angry. And I said, Bobby, you're a great dad to your kids, you're a great husband to your wife. I I can't do any of that stuff, man. And I have hurt everybody. And I know that Jesus is real and he saved my life. And he said, You're going to find out. That none of this is real, and you're throwing your your life away. You're throwing our friendship away. So finally, we got to the point on the phone where he was gonna like be there when I came back, and we'd play music together. And and I told him everything's gonna change, man, because I'm gonna learn who Jesus is. I was prophesying yeah. what was gonna happen, but I had no idea. It was like it was like Caiaphas prophesying like it's better that one man die than a whole nation. And like I, I had no idea it was happening. So I ended up leaving for Teen Challenge, and I called my friend to say goodbye to him. And I left a message on his answering machine because he didn't leave. I lost my daughter. I lost my girl. And I went away to this program. And I found that the Bible says, therefore, in James 4, 7, therefore submit to God, resist the devil and he'll flee. My resistance of of the devil, my resistance of addiction, my resistance of the enemy isn't found in my fighting the enemy, isn't found in me trying to beat my flesh and trying to it's just not not found there my my defense and resistance of the enemy is found in my in my in my overwhelming submission to god so out of my submission to god it's not a two-step program it's not that i submit and then i resist nope it's that i submit surrender and god helps me resist because i have no ability to fight the enemy on my own they'll defeat you he will crush you. He will annihilate you. There is no possible way for you to beat this thing on your own. That's why even people that that go to MA, one out of 10 people can stay clean if they had continual meetings twice a week for life. One out of 10. Yeah. So at Teen Challenge um, and at the rehab, because of the intensity of it and what it, what it does, and I'm sure your rehab, if it's faith-based, is like pretty much the same is seven out of 10 people can stay clean because yeah. of their relationship. They've established seven to eight out of 10, which is pretty amazing odds. It's better than the whole world, actually, yeah. of any odds in any rehab all across the world. Right. But that is all on you. That is not on the rehab program. You watching, that's on your, your level of submission, your level of surrender. You're saying, I am pushing all my chips to the center of the table, and I'm giving my whole life to God, and I'm not holding anything back from him. I'm going to give it all. That means the Bible needs to be your number one priority. Yeah. Number one priority. Not just reading it while you're at the rehab in front of people in a corporate setting, but you actually getting on your knees saying, God, I have no idea how this life you gave to me works. Because here's the truth. Yeah. If I were to hand you an invention and tell you that it could change the world, everything as you know it, the most powerful invention that was ever created. And I handed it to you and it was this big. I handed it to you, and you looked at it, and you tried to figure out like how it worked. You couldn't find an on and off switch. You would be desperate to find an instruction manual so you could figure out how this thing works, because there's a way to go about things to get this thing that could change everything to work. And God made us in his image. He created us in his likeness, and the likeness of God he made man. Jesus restored that which was lost, but the Bible is actually the instruction manual on how this temple, on how these bodies, on how these minds, on how these hearts are supposed to think. So what happens is a lot of people are given that. If I were to give you that thing and say, hey, figure this out, and you couldn't find the on and off switch, you couldn't find the instruction manual, what you would do, no matter how valuable it was, is you'd set it somewhere because you knew it had power, but you weren't going to give it to anybody, but you'd set it somewhere, it would collect dust. And that's where people's Bibles are, collecting dust, just sitting there, but it actually has the ability to change your whole life, not just that Bible, but the Holy Spirit and the word meeting and him interpreting and him communicating to your heart. And so with me, I went to Teen Challenge, gave up everything, shaved my head, lost everything, lost my girl, lost my daughter. And I pressed in and I would get up an hour earlier than everybody else when the day would, before the day would start to go alone, to be in a room by myself. And to open the Bible and ask God to reveal Himself to me. And so I actually had no like I had no idea where to go. I just flip it open, Russian roulette, like wherever it landed, I would read. But sure enough, within the first two or three scriptures, my mind is gone, thinking, I lost my daughter, I lost my girlfriend, I wonder what they're doing, I wonder how Bobby's doing. I wish I could play music. I wish I could get high. I wish I could drink alcohol. Oh, man, remember that party? That was awesome. So the same stuff is still rolling through. And at night, I had to have these horrible, horrible nightmares where I'd be attacked again and again and again by these demonic, crazy monsters in my dreams. It was horrible. I'd wake up high like, like I just smoked a bag of Coke. I'd wake up. My endorphins are cranking. I'd feel high. I'm like what is happening? Like, I'd have these nightmares, these I'd run around the room, scare my roommates in team Challenge because I'd be like sleepwalking. I'd be sleep running like this because the enemy couldn't have me during the day. But like when I closed my eyes at night, it was just terror. It was crazy. All day was I would be in classes after that hour where I would be with Jesus from five to six, six o'clock. The wake up call is then you go about your day, you do your chores, you go through it. and Then you have school, you have class how they go and train you and teach you the Bible and teach you biblical insights. I couldn't memorize, I couldn't understand, I couldn't answer a lot of questions um, just because I couldn't retain it. But I knew I wanted change. So my first step was you have to surrender, you have to submit. If you're in a program, you've already submitted, you've already surrendered. But while you're there, you can either dive fully in or you can just incorporate Jesus and go back out and use when you're done. Yeah. So you can either completely give yourself and know that you have the rest of your life ahead of you, and you can give a small window of time with complete, complete saturation of giving yourself to God, surrendering your whole life to him, giving him your all in all, and knowing that with God all things are possible, and all things are possible to them that believe. And knowing that God wants to change you and transform you. Going to a rehab doesn't transform you. The renewing of your, of your mind transforms you. And so you need to renew your mind because the way that a man thinks leads to destruction. It's the way, it's not the way that a man thinks when his mind's renewed, but as a man thinketh, so is he. As you think in your heart, so are you. And if you're coming out of addiction or you're coming out of that life, what happens is the enemy wants to terrorize your soul. He wants to completely come after this piece. He wants to hit your mind, will, and emotions to make you regret. He wants to make you guilty. He wants to make you ashamed, and he wants to make you focus on all the things you wish you'd never done. So what the gospel does is the first place that Jesus comes to restore is the very place that sin defiled. So sin defiled the soul. It defiles the soul. It defiles your your conscience. And so in Hebrews 9, it talks about the blood of Jesus. When you have all these animal sacrifices over all these years. In Hebrews 9, it talks about it was it was unable the blood of bulls and goats, the ashes of a heifer, the sprinkling of the unclean. It was impossible for these blood of animal sacrifices to cleanse the conscience from dead works. It was impossible. There was no way for them to be to be purified up here in your soul. The blood of animals over all those years, all it did was it externally atoned for sin and postponed the penalty for another year. The blood of Jesus doesn't postpone the penalty. It nullifies the penalty. The blood of Jesus doesn't postpone the penalty for 365 days. Guilt, shame, and condemnation came through the law. Moses was given that ministry. It was given the ministry of condemnation engraved on stones, the Ten Commandments, the law, the 613 laws in the Torah, that unless you obeyed every one of them, you failed all of them. You could miss one and fail every one. And so nobody could do it. It says the law was a tutor to show us our need for a savior. So when Jesus came, he fulfilled the law completely. And he gave us two commandments, and those commandments are love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. And all the law and the prophets, all the commandments hang on those two. Why? Because if I love God with all my mind, with all my soul, there is no way that sin can have me because my hand can no longer cause me to sin. My mind has to premeditate this thing from doing it. My mind has to premeditate a fantasy from happening But for to happen my mind has to premeditate whether i'm going to steal this for this my mind has to so god is after your mind and so is the enemy the devil is not god's god's opposite the devil is a created being the devil is not the opposite of god there is no war between god and the devil like so many people paint that it's not a war for that the war is the devil is after your mind he's after this right here he wants to completely permeate this Twist this, distort this. He wants you to be guilty, ashamed, and condemned. He wants you to live that way. And he wants to he wants to water down the blood of Jesus in that it really isn't that powerful. There is nothing that this world can give you. Like, there is no possible yes that this world can give you that's more powerful than the no that God gives us. Like, God's no is way more powerful than any yes we could ever get from the world. Like when God says, no, you shouldn't do that. No, you shouldn't do that. God's saying, no, that's wrong because it's going to give you this on down the road. Like if you're in a program and you're like, well, I feel like I need to be home with my kids. I feel like I need to be home with my wife. I feel like I need to. And God says, it's not time for you to outrule. That is to say that your yes in the flesh is stronger than God's no to get you stable. And God wants to get you more than stable. He wants you to be a rock that can't be shaken. He wants you to build on your foundation, which is Christ, the reality of Christ setting you free, but not just setting you free, but keeping you free. He wants to transform you and completely change and alter the way that you think so that you don't think anymore. As an orphan, you think as a son or a daughter of a king that loves you and gave himself for you. So with me, I'm in Teen Challenge a couple days. I get this phone call from this pastor. He calls in. They bring me in the office. I'm completely surrendered. I don't know how to read yet. And I'm pretty sad that I'm gone and and left my, my, you know, my, I lost my daughter. I lost my girl. I lost everything, everything, family, all of it. I've ruined my life. I'm 34 years old at the time. And I'm like, I'm like done. Like, there's nothing I can do to fix it. So I get this phone call. They bring me in the office, and it looks like something bad has happened to my family, like my girlfriend and my daughter. We live close to town. I ripped off a lot of drug dealers. I didn't want them to suffer consequences for what I've done. And so I I told him what happened, and he told me it was Bobby, my best friend. He had a brain aneurysm. And so the only friend that I had, the only one that stuck by me, the one that said, Jesus isn't real, the one that said, You're going to throw your life away, has now had a brain aneurysm. And he had it the first day when I left. When I left a message on his answering machine, they found him later that day having a brain aneurysm. When Betty came home from work, the kids were there, and he was on the floor unconscious. They took him to the hospital and declared him brain dead. And there was no hope for him, but they wanted to keep him alive. So now he's going to be on life support. And I freaked out. I didn't leave, but I went up to the prayer room, and I started screaming at God. Like, you can't scream at somebody that doesn't exist. So I'm screaming at God, and all of a sudden, peace hit me like I'd never. Peace hit me. Like, in that circumstance, there was no way for me to have peace or find peace. It had to come from something else. And so God hit me with peace, and I heard this this thought, the still small voice, you're not going anywhere. You're staying right here. And I submitted and surrendered to this program, and I went through it for a month and a half, and every day I did the same routine. I would wake up early. I would spend time with the Lord. I would go in that prayer room. Even I didn't feel anything. I didn't see anything. I didn't sense any of his presence that people talk about. I I didn't know any of that stuff. All I knew is that I was lost, but now I'm found. I knew that I was completely blind and didn't even know that God was real, but now I see he is real. I was dead in my sin and my life and all that stuff. And now I know that like I'm alive, but I don't know how to 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 keep freedom going, you know, because I'm inside of like this glass bubble incubator kind of bubble place where nothing can really get me in there. There, No one has drugs in there. No one has alcohol in there. But I'm like, how am I going to like how am I going to maintain freedom? How can I freedom? How can I get like Dan? How can I like he's free? What do I do? And then all of a sudden we were going through something at, at team challenge the day before. We were going through a scripture in James, and it talks about kind of joy when you face various trials. And I freaked out. I'm like, you guys have to be out of your mind. Like, dude, every time I'm on trial, I'm guilty. I'm going to jail. Like, what is wrong with you? Why would you even say that? Why would he say that? (laughs) I have an orange jumpsuit on standing in front of a judge, lying my face off, knowing that he's just going to know anyway. And I'm going to get nailed and going to get put in jail, knowing that I'm going to get extradited, like all that stuff. So I'm like, you guys are nuts. So I went in the prayer room the next day. And I opened my Bible to James and it says, if you lack wisdom, ask God who gives to all generously without finding fault. I didn't even get to the part of, I didn't even read the part about a trial. I saw that and I I shut my Bible. I sat down and I went, oh my God, I don't have any wisdom. Oh my God, I don't have any wisdom. And I like started to scream. I'm wisdomless probably for 35 minutes. I kind of like jumped around and I thought I found the most valuable key in the whole world, like this wisdom key, because like just being witty and, and joking and making fun of people and being smarter than people isn't wisdom. It's actually putting other people down. I found out that the wisdom of God is peaceable and gentle and willing to yield and full of good fruits without partiality, without hypocrisy. Like, I found out, like, that's God's wisdom. I don't have any of that at all. I said, I lack wisdom. And it was like this light went on in my soul. And the next day or that day during school, I I was, like, getting stuff in my heart. I'm like, oh, my God, I get it. I get it. And I noticed that my comprehension didn't, like, just fade away. I wasn't reading three scriptures and it was gone. I could actually read and focus on the page without drifting. I'm like, oh, my God, do it more, do it more. And so that day, everything changed, and the Bible opened up to me. I remember reading that same scripture again, you know, he who lacks wisdom, let him ask God. And then I read that scripture about trials. If anybody, you know, if you when you face these various trials, if need be, you know, consider it joy. And it talks about trials producing character, or trials producing patience, and patience producing character, and character leading to hope. And hope doesn't disappoint. And I thought to myself, I hate trials. And I had this still small thought that this thought said, that's because you're always guilty. I say you're not guilty. Uh-huh. So I'm like, well, that would be nice. That's like <laughs> that's like crazy. But it was so far out there that like, I-, I didn't know it was God trying to speak to me. So then it happened again. I'm like, are you trying to tell me that I'm not guilty? And I looked at the cross and I looked at, I read a book. I read a book on uh, a little tiny pamphlet when I was there by a guy named Kenneth Hagan on covenant. And I'm like, oh my God, like, this is what you have for me? I'm like, are you telling me that, like, all the stuff that I've done, like, you can forgive all of that? What about the guy that got murdered that night? What about, what about my friend that got shot because they thought he was me? What about, what about all the pornography? What about all that stuff? Like, what about the I hate yous and the death threats to my girlfriend? What about being extradited, and lying to all those people? What about all the people in the military I hurt? What about what about all that stuff? What, what about that? God said, all of it. I said, you're saying that the cross, I read Colossians 2, says that the powers and principalities, if they'd have known, What they were doing, they never would have crucified Jesus. And I thought, if they would have known this was possible, Satan would have killed everybody trying to crucify Jesus instead of crucifying Jesus. And I thought, oh, my God, you said that you wipe out the handwriting against me, meaning all the laws that I've broken, all the things I've done wrong, all the dead works. And then all the dead works that are in my soul, my mind, all that regret and shame and guilt. That's not mine. And it was like too good to be true. It was like, "Oh, you gotta kidding me? You're kidding me!" And I called and I talked to Dan, that pastor, and he goes, "Todd, that's what righteousness is." I went, "Oh my God, you gotta be kidding me!" And this freedom hit my soul that God will never bring up my past again. He'll never, he'll never say, "Remember when you did this?" <laughs> he'll never say, "Remember when you were nine and this happened." Remember when you were touched strong when you were seven? He'll never say that. He wants me to forgive that stuff and let that stuff go. He'll never bring up the thieving, the ripping off. Everybody else will, but God won't. All the people I've wronged, of course, because that's that bridge thing, like the bridges, burned bridges. Well, what am I doing about all that? So God, he showed me when I was in Teen Challenge, I don't want you to focus on how you can repair that. He told me, I want you to build this. And so as I'm building this, I'm getting stronger in the Lord. And it's only like, I'm talking like a couple months, like crazy. So I have these three nights where I have these encounters with the Lord, like with Jesus, these three these three nights in a row. And I ended up I ended up going home. And uh, I didn't have a home to live in, but I ended up leaving Teen Challenge. Dan came and picked me up. He took me to my house, and, and I needed to say I was sorry. Whether they forgive me or not, I needed to say I was sorry because— Reconciliation, to me, it, 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 it takes the other person wanting it, too. But reconciliation with me is that I was reconciled to God. And, and he's made us all, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, ambassadors of reconciliation. Like, he's made us all those people. You can't fix where you've been, and you can't fix what you've done. But you can completely submit and surrender to God and allow him to train your soul to be his son and for him to be an amazing father. And, and in time, the fruit that hangs on your tree will bear witness of what kind of tree you are. And you don't have to try to sell your fruit to your family. You can let them pick it.
0: It's different. Thank you guys so much for joining us today to listen to part one of Todd White's testimony. It is incredible. I hate to do this to you. We are going to air part two next Wednesday. I had the privilege to be able to spend an hour and a half with Todd hearing all about his testimony, details that I've never heard him share before. And so we're going to play the rest of it next week since it's a little too long for one podcast. However, for some of you who just absolutely cannot wait Until next Wednesday, please click the link below and you can go and watch the video of Todd and I and him sharing his entire testimony. Love you guys. Bless you guys. I will see you next week.